a wildlife wet market is the ones where they are bringing in all sorts of different animals, snakes and pangolins and bats and civets and housing them a lot of times live, a lot of times they're slaughtered on site. And, you know, blood from a pangolin splashes into the person who's slaughtering its eye. And, oh, that pangolin day before, you know, had gotten blood from a, a bat on it because it was slaughtered next to its cage. And there you go, there's your, your viral transmission. to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, Wildlife Warriors. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Lauren Ayres, a wildlife conservation professional, animal care and behavior specialist, and pangolin project coordinator at Global Conservation Force. So Lauren, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, and welcome to the Conservation Tribe. So today's podcast is going to be focused around pangolins. Um, so we're going to start there. We're going to talk about pangolins and then kind of see where that takes us. But right. before we do that, can you please expand a little more on who you are and what you do? So I'm Lauren and I have been in the zookeeping field for about 13 years. So my day job is a zookeeper, which is kind of how I got involved in pangolins. I've kind of worked all over with a variety of different species. Currently, I work in Southern California at a zoo down here with our ambassador animals. So I get to do a lot of public outreach and presentations. But I work for a nonprofit organization kind of on the side. It's all volunteers. All of us are volunteers that run it called Global Conservation Force. And my role there is that I'm the project coordinator for our pangolin projects. So anything involving pangolins, it's all me. So how long have you been working with animals for, like working in the conservation animal space? So my first zookeeping job was when I was 19. So if you do the math, that was 13 years ago, so I'm old. Um, <laughs> and I worked with big cats at a rescue facility. And I was there for five years. From there, I went on to work with marine mammals. And then I went back to terrestrials uh, several years later. Um, and I've kind of just stuck in that realm. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, um, when you mentioned that you're, you're feeling a little, little old in this space, you're killing it on TikTok though, aren't you? Ah, TikTok. Yes, uh... that is like so much fun. Um, my demographic there, all the, my, my followers are all like eight to 12 year olds, which is really fun for me. It's definitely um, bringing out the youth in me, but also realizing like when I'm doing the dances and trying to like pretend like I'm cool, I'm just like, oh, this is so far beyond my 32 year old body. I can't do this. Uh, I've got some TikTok questions for you at the end because okay. um, I think it's quite an important um, platform, I think, for conservationists to explore uh, however oh, yeah. they can. Like I, I'm so awkward with the TikTok style of content, but I'm trying to force myself to learn. And a few of my friends 
in conservation are trying to do the same. So I've got some questions for you, but that's we'll save that for the end. Okay. So we'll dive into some pangolin stuff. So we'll we'll begin with I guess the basic question of what is a pangolin, uh, and for the the listeners out there, how would you describe this intriguing looking animal? So pangolins are mammals, first and foremost, but a lot of times when people look at them, they think that they are reptiles because they are entirely covered in scales. So they are the only truly scaled mammal. Some people would argue that armadillos have scales, but they actually don't. They have a carapace, so all the scales are connected in an armadillo. But with pangolins, they're individual scales, and those scales are made out of keratin, so they're like our fingernails. In some species, they literally feel like just entirely covered in fingernails. It's the same thickness in some of the smaller species. Now, when you get into the bigger species, it's much thicker, the scales are, and they can actually withstand the bite of a lion. So that's their armor. They are insectivores, so they eat ants and termites. And in my opinion, they're the most adorable animal in the entire world. <laughs> the most adorable animal. I wouldn't be arguing with you. They're pretty damn cute. <laughs> So you mentioned the true, the only truly scaled mammal in the world, and you mentioned the armadillo. So the difference is the armadillo, it looks like it has scales, but it's one thing. It's, it's not separate. Like, can you explain yes. the difference between like why the armadillo isn't a truly scaled mammal? And are there other ones yeah. other than the armadillo? Or is that the only um, armadillos, I think, are where people normally go. They're, um, they have a hard outer covering, um, and they're pretty much like not thinking of any other mammals off the top of my head that have any sort of hard outside you know, shell, per se. So with armadillos, there's 26 different species. Armadillos are also one of my favorite animals, so I could go <laughs> on and on about armadillos for a half hour, um, which I won't. But they have bands, and in between each band is a kind of like a thick keratin shell. And depending on the species, they have multiple different ones of these. They're almost like plates, right? So, you know, a three-banded armadillo is going to have three of those. Mm -hmm. And then one band that goes over their head and one, or one like shell part that goes over their head and one part that goes over their booty. Um, and then, you know, the nine-banded has like nine of them. So they're, they're almost like interconnected fused scales right, in, yeah. a, in like a plate, yeah. um, in an armadillo. Whereas with a, do you want me to explain the pangolin one? Yeah, too? yeah, go for it, go for it. Let's dive in. Okay, so in pangolins, they are like I said, like fingernails. So each one has its own bed, just like our fingernails have a, a nail bed, and they're all kind of overlapping on one on top of each other. So you could don't do this, but you could like physically remove one scale. And whereas with a armadillo, you're not going to be able to remove it because it's fused to all the others. If that makes sense. Okay, so for me, you can visualize it, the scales of a pangolin as fingernails. It's made of yes. the same stuff, really hard fingernails that it's used to kind of protect itself. And they're so hard that it can protect itself from a, a lion's bite, you said. Mm -hmm. And they some kind species, of, they, they, yeah. some species, and they crawl up in a little ball. That's how they do yes. it. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. You, you mentioned before we started this podcast that they are your favorite animals. So why, have you got a reason or you just got this gut like attraction towards them or is there like a reason why um, they're your favorite? There's a lot of different reasons. One, they're like the most innocent animal in the entire world. They don't have any teeth. So their only defense 
is they can pinch with their their claws because they but it's not very you know they're not going to tear you up or anything like that um their real defense is to curl in a ball like you said and hope for the best so they're kind of just so sweet and innocent and you know they're just like okay i'll just wait it out whatever's scary and i had the opportunity to actually work with one in a zoo for several years and that's actually how they became my favorites was just with this one individual that was a rescue and had been confiscated by the zoo that I worked at. And he had such an amazing personality, very, very different than an armadillo per se, much more engaged with individual people and had kind of like a relationship with certain keepers. I was one of the few that he decided he really liked. Um, and so like, you know, you come in in the morning and wake him up and he would like, you know, wake up and then just like reach like, okay, please hold me. And he'd like follow you out the door, like, don't leave, don't leave. So I just developed this bond with him. And in all of that, it was long before pangolins were in the media. So nobody really knew what they were. And I realized what plight they had. I mean, at the time they were still the number one most illegally trafficked mammal. Um, that's much more, you know, present. Now people know that more, but at the time nobody really knew that, um, that didn't work directly with pangolins. And I just really wanted to do something about that because mm. I was like, I love this individual animal. How do I make sure everyone else out there loves them and protects them? And that's kind of where my journey started with pangolins. Mm -hmm. So there's this innocence around them. They don't have any teeth. They're kind of, they don't really have any attacking features. And then you contrast that with the fact that they are the, the world's most illegally trafficked mammal. Besides humans, I believe. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so that contrast, that innocence versus this fact that they're just being exploited so much, I think would make a lot of people's hearts, you know, gravitate towards this kind of animal. And I think, you know, I can see that when you talk about them, that that's definitely you. And, yeah. and me and pretty much every, everyone in this space, when you get to know this, this animal and, and how they're currently being exploited. So the pangolin, according to the IUCN, all eight species of pangolin are threatened with extinction. So all eight species. Mm -hmm. um, what are the main reasons for this? So pangolins are found in both Africa and Asia, four species found on each continent. Now, initially, the African pangolins weren't doing so bad. Most of the um, trade was coming out of Asia. And the primary reason, well, there's kind of two primary reasons for pangolin trafficking and consumption. One is in certain different cultures, there are traditional medicines and pangolin scale is very prevalent as a traditional medicine. In addition to that, there are also this, this it's like a delicacy. The meat is like a delicacy. And so people, it's a status symbol. If you're able to purchase pangolin meat and eat it, you obviously have a lot of money and you can, you know, you know impress your friends or whatever. And that's along with the same sort of cultures that are eating them for medicinal purposes. But you might recall that their scales are made out of keratin, which is the same as our fingernails. So they actually have zero medicinal value. It's a lot of placebo effect. And unfortunately, there were certain governments that actually included pangolin scales as a remedy on insurance plans. So they were bringing validity to that market as well as listing it in all of their pharmaceutical guides. So as they would publish it, it would come out. And so, you know, people are continuing to have this idea that pangolin scales have a medicinal purpose when in fact they don't. So when the Asian species started getting decimated, 
the traffickers and the people that were collecting them to give to these markets then started to go to Africa. And it was very easy to start to decimate the populations in Africa as well. Okay, so you've got the four Asian species and the four African species. So the, the Asian species were threatened, I guess, first. Yes. And then there's a finite number of these animals. And when that number decreases, they then move to, to Africa uh, to try mm -hmm. and take advantage of the species there. Okay, so, so illegal poaching, I guess, would be the, the major threat for, for them? Yes. Are there any yeah, other threats? I, I mean, just like any other animal in our world right now, habitat destruction, human encroachment is a huge issue. These guys are very elusive, so they're going to be in the farthest depths away from people. Some species are burrowers, some species hang out up in the trees, and so you're not really seeing as much human encroachment as you might with, like, say, a lion, where there's going to be a lot of human-wildlife conflict with animals like that. However, uh, there is a bushmeat trade for them as well, um, especially in Africa, somewhat in Asia, but not, not as prevalent as in Africa, where, you know, people are needing to feed their families, so they just kill whatever they can find. Penguins are one of the things that they find, and they're really easy to get and, and consume, but that's less of a, of a concern in terms of population sustainability than the yeah. trafficking out to the different markets. Yeah, so the trafficking out to the different markets, just so I can wrap my head around it, the main ones are, so you, you can eat the pangolin, and that's usually used as like a status type symbol, and then yep. medicinal purposes. Yes, yeah. Which, so those are the main two. They're the main two. I read recently, it's been popping up on the internet quite a bit, that the Chinese government has removed pangolin scales from the approved traditional medicine ingredients list. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are you, I guess, optimistic that this could uh, make some drastic changes for, for the pangolin? Yeah, yeah, I am. Surprisingly, it, it did come as a surprise to a lot of conservationists. Not so much because we haven't been trying to target that, but the fact that they're admitting that there is no valid medicinal reason. So basically, the Chinese government issues this list of different spe or different ingredients or um, pharmaceuticals every single year and quietly removed pangolin scales from it. So they didn't actually come out and, and you know, make an announcement, we removed pangolin scales, but they just removed it. Um, and there was actually a journal that, that published the results of this list that came out. I believe it was June 9th, I want to say. And then that got wind in the media. And so now everyone knows that now pangolin scales are not being recognized by the Chinese government as a valid medicine. And that is like the most important thing for wildlife conservation, especially in you know consumption markets with like rhino horn, tiger bone, things like that, pangolin scales, is how do we remove the validity that this is an actual treatment? Because until you reduce the demand, it's going to continue to be a problem. So it will be nice to see if they're able to enforce it and if they're able to offer a, you know, alternative medicines to pangolin scales that are hopefully sustainable and push that. They did remove pangolin scales. Uh, China removed pangolin scales from um, their list of insurance covered treatments, as did Vietnam several years ago. So that was a, a good step to begin with because if insurance doesn't cover it, then... yeah. I mean, it's crazy that that's, it's covered at that insurance level, like that government, well, that's just crazy. Yeah. Well, it seems crazy know, to, to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for us to understand that because, you know, growing up 
in a Western medicine inundated society, you know, we, we think this has nothing to do, like how, how could that possibly be a, a treatment? But we also have to consider other cultures and other, you know, traditions and take that into consideration mm. as well and not just put a judgment like, oh, it's all these people and they all mm -hmm. believe this. And that's not true. There are plenty of people that are in Vietnam, in China, in all the other countries that are experiencing high trafficking levels of pangolins that are pushing to stop pangolin. I mean, that's really why a lot of this legislation is going through is because it's people in those countries that are wanting to protect the animals. So, mm. And that's a good point. Like talking about this is obviously very important, but when there's some cultural sensitivity to it, it's important how we, you know, manage that dialogue. So like how, how do you personally have these conversations considering, you know, there are these cultural differences and we, we don't want to be talking about this topic and then kind of assuming that everyone in that country, you know, thinks this way or acts this way or whatever. How, how do you kind of manage that, that conversation? It's, it's, it's a tricky one. It is. It is very tricky. And one of the things that our organization, Global Conservation Force, does is we are supporting people in those communities through either training or providing them with gear or educating the kids or providing funding so locals can educate the kids. And basically letting the people in those areas disseminate the message rather than just some chick from California coming mm -hmm. in telling you, hey, what you're doing is wrong because that's not gonna solve anything because as soon as we go away, people are gonna continue to do what they've always done. So really, it's just about shifting the mindset, giving alternatives and showing them, you know, hey, there's other things that you can do for money, say, if you're going to talk to a hunter or, you know, giving them the capacity to earn money in other ways besides just trafficking pangolins. Yeah, and I think that's a good mentality, kind of focusing these solutions from like a community basis first and then growing outwards from there, as opposed to people on the outside critiquing and judging like an outside in approach versus like an inside out approach. I think that's, that's quite important. I found it quite interesting when you said that when China dropped this, you know, amazing news that they did it on the DLO. Yeah. I, I would have thought they would have been marketing the hell out of that. It's, it seems like a bit of a, it's a weird one. It is weird. It is weird. You know, I think with Pangolin's association with COVID-19 possibly being associated with it, that kind of came out in like February. People were saying that pangolins were the source that never was proven. Um, and most likely they were actually the vector. So it probably originated in a bat and was passed from a pangolin on. But that put a lot of pressure on the Chinese government to look at pangolin consumption in the country. and even though it was illegal for certain species to come in, their native species that are found in China were technically legal. And they weren't really like policing, oh, this is an African species or this is a Chinese pangolin that, that are coming in. They were just like, oh, we're just gonna turn a blind eye to that. So I think there was some pressure on the Chinese government to say, hey, like we need to stop this pangolin thing right away. So the wildlife markets, you know, obviously we heard a lot about those being shut down, not necessarily still shut down, but uh, there's been a lot of change going on, um, at least from the outside in, from what I can see here in California, in terms of just wildlife markets in general. They also have um, kind of put forth a list of approved 
animals that can be considered livestock. Um, whereas in the past, it kind of was very loose. So you could breed and have whatever animal you wanted and sell it for meat. It could be a civet, it could be a cow. You know, they were treated as the same. Whereas recently, um, the Chinese government said, no, like this is our list of like 30 animals. Obviously civets weren't on there, pangolins weren't on there, tigers aren't on there, you know, things that are consumed at high, high volumes. Um, so that was another big step for just wildlife conservation in general in China was just the government recognizing that it's an issue and we're gonna come out and we're gonna say something about it. Now with removing pangolin scales from the list of approved medicines or you know, valid medicines, I'm not exactly sure why they didn't publicly announce this. They publicly announced the you know, livestock classification that they did uh, probably about a month ago now, but I'm not really sure why they, they didn't. Maybe a public outcry, you know, maybe people would, would fight it. I, I don't really know exactly why. Maybe it's just easier to, to not bring attention to it. Yeah, uh, there, there must be a reason, but yeah, I can't really put your finger on it. Mm -mm. You mentioned COVID-19. I want to talk about that real quick. So pangolins have been getting a lot of attention recently due to the potential link between the pangolin and COVID-19. Can you speak to that and, and maybe clarify what that link is? You touched on it before, but like, could you expand a little bit on that? Please? Yeah, absolutely. So there, let's see, there's a lot. So genetically, the virus that we have, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is genetically new. It's a novel virus. We've never seen it before. There's lots of mutations of it. And it was seen that in, I think there was like one individual to begin with of a pangolin in a lab that they were able to test. And it had very similar markers, um, genetic markers to what we're seeing in humans, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, very, very similar. Not identical, but similar. Um, and that is where the news kind of took off with it coming from pangolins. Further research showed that there's actually a much more similar virus coming out of the horseshoe bat, which is found in caves in China. And, you know, okay, so did it come from a bat? Did it come from a pangolin? We don't really know. The issue is that a lot of times maybe it wouldn't go directly from a bat to a human. Maybe they're, you know, dogs get parvovirus and people don't get parvovirus. You can have a dog with parvo, we're not gonna catch it. So we could be in contact with these bats that have it all the time and never catch it. But the second the bat comes in contact with a pangolin, there's enough mutation within the pangolin for a person to pick up the virus. So the core root of the issue is having unsanitary conditions with deceased pangolins or pangolins that are killed on site as well as bats deceased or killed on site, or even living together live and, you know, sneezing or whatever back on each other, that the virus was able to kind of jump from one to humans. Basically, the pangolins acted as kind of an intermediary host of the virus, is the, the current thought. There has, I don't know if there ever will be some definitive proof that this is what happens, but what we've seen in the past with the SARS-CoV-1, which was the SARS virus that we saw several years ago, 2002, I'm gonna say, is that it came from bats and was hosted in civets and then went to humans. So I guess the root of the problem, like don't house bats and pangolins who would never naturally come in contact with each other near each other. Yeah, okay, so those animals being next to each other in unnatural settings, that's 
where does that setting occur? Is that due to that livestock thing or is that the wildlife trade? It's going to be in the wildlife wet markets. So um, okay. a lot of people keep saying wet market, wet market, wet market. Don't just call it a wet market because wet markets, you know, like our farmer's markets are considered a wet market. It's, you know, where you go and get your fresh produce and your fresh meat and stuff. But a wildlife wet market is the ones where they are bringing in all sorts of different animals, snakes and pangolins and bats and civets and housing them a lot of times live. A lot of times they're slaughtered on site and, you know, a blood from a pangolin splashes into the person who's slaughtering its eye and oh that pangolin day before you, you know had gotten blood from a, a bat on it because it was slaughtered next to its cage and there you go there's your your viral transmission so okay. there's a lot of a lot of issues with it okay so in terms of terminology when we talk about it it's not simply a wet market it's a type of wet Correct. market but it's a wildlife wet market and that can Correct. be a recipe for disaster because you have all these different wildlife together in one location and all this blood can kind of go from all these different animals and that could spread the disease. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, not it could not necessarily be blood. It could be through feces, yeah. urine, you know, any, any sort of fluid. Okay. But if you think of a pangolin out in the wild and especially like an African pangolin, right? So we're going to take, you know, a Cape pangolin from Africa that's been trafficked all the way up um, to China. And then you're going to have a horseshoe bat from a cave in China. Those two animals would never, ever, ever come in contact with each other out in the wild. And so the likelihood of a virus passing from one to the other would never happen unless they're in a situation like this. And that's kind of how we got where we are yeah yeah okay so i guess if we stop or mitigate wildlife trafficking in the first place that would be removing that'd be addressing the root of this whole issue and yeah yep. you know removing that hopefully will reduce the chances of another covid 19 happening in the future hopefully correct okay so talking about some some solutions so going to the work that you're doing as the pangolin project coordinator at global conservation force what are some of the the work and projects that you're currently working on on there? Well, COVID-19 has kind of uh, shut down a lot of our shut projects, um, okay. of course. But some of our pangolin-specific projects um, that we have done in the past, we've worked with Save Vietnam's Wildlife, which is in Vietnam. They're kind of like the forefront pangolin rescue, and they rescue and rehabilitate and re-release pangolins in Vietnam. So we worked with them in terms of husbandry care for the animals that are in their care permanent long term. We went out there and provided some workshops and stuff for their, their keepers. And in addition, we worked with their education team on developing a engaging program for kids. So the, they have an amazing program there for their education. They bus children in from local towns and they get to do like basically a two day long field trip where they learn about nature and they learn about animals and they learn about why you shouldn't, you know, consume a pangolin and why binturongs shouldn't be entertainment and things like that, which is excellent. That is perfect 100%. But what ends up happening with a lot of these programs, and you know, I remember that as a kid going to a field trip and learning about something really, really cool. And then I go home and tell my parents, I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. And that's the end of it that, you know, you don't talk about it again, you, you know, maybe you and your friends, you're not going to really converse 
hey, remember that time we went down to the watershed and we learned about those frogs? You know, like it doesn't happen. So we wanted to kind of continue that conversation. And one way that we decided to come up with it, it uh, a continuation of the conversation was to create trading cards. So this goes on hmm. like my childhood, uh, which was Pokemon cards, right? So yes, yeah, you're, you're there too. <laughs> um, it's probably why a lot of us love animals that are uh, in this generation. I loved Pokemon. Oh, I love the nostalgia. You just hit me with some nostalgia. Okay. <laughs> I didn't understand it. I just knew we collected them. So I just like had a bunch of them, but I didn't know how to play um, okay. because that was the kind of kid I was. You're doing it. I want to do it. Yeah. But we created a trading card series with eight different species that are highly trafficked or highly endangered in Vietnam. Pangolins being one, ventrongs, um, civets, two different species, tortoises or a turtle a primate and made these trading cards and it's kind of the the initial attempt at creating a, a card game so we wanted to roll this out and see how it did and basically each of the cards the goal is for the kids to collect all of them so they could either trade them with their friends that have them everybody when we started everybody got one card but then we um, moved it to three cards per kid. And so then they could kind of trade back and forth. And the goal was that they bring this home with them and they can show their parents and then they can talk about them and they can pass them back and forth. And it's right there in front of their face. So it's not just that, you know, two day intensive field trip, but they can continue on learning about them. So that's a, a very small, small thing, right? But we're hoping to be able to roll out these cards in all the areas that we work. And we primarily work in Africa. So our Vietnam partnership is, is pretty new, but we wanna be able to have the same sort of trading card fun game. You know, it's not so much like a workbook or whatever, like you normally would give, but something that, that kids can actually play with and have fun with. So that's in, in the works. I like um, it, I like it. Of expanding it. So there's that, yeah. yeah. Ah, I like it. Um, a friend and I have actually been talking about some Pokemon card idea, but appropriating it for conservation because the whole idea of, you know, learning and education is this gamifying that. How can you make that fun? Mm -hmm. How can you make it so that people want to participate in that learning in the first place? And, and trading cards are a good example. When I think of trading cards and when I think of books like these physical offline, you know, cards and, and books and whatnot, how can you link that to the digital world? And like QR codes, I, I find it quite interesting. Like if you have a QR code on each card and that mm -hmm. scanning that could link back to a digital resource as well. That'd be awesome. That could be an idea. Yeah. I'm just, just throwing it out there. Maybe, um, maybe we'll, uh, we'll start <laughs> chatting about this. So we yeah, have a couple yeah. partners on board that are interested in, in getting involved with it. So mm. it'd be cool to uh, kind of make a collaborative effort and spread it out as mm. far as we can get it so yeah i think that's a great idea just think about the, the pokemon thing that obviously there was a cartoon associated with it as well that added to kind of the community but for me i was very much i love the cartoon obviously but i, I love the card aspect and and perhaps i wonder if pokemon actually assisted in my me liking animals i wonder i'm intrigued if there's a link between my love for for pokemon and my love for animals um, that's you know, Sandshrew is a po is a pangolin, right? Yeah, yeah, Sandshrew. Mm -hmm. And Sandshrew. I mean, I don't really, I don't know if it's exactly, the pangolin, but it's <laughs> pretty darn close. Yeah, yeah. And Sandslash. 
yeah, that's the evolution of. Back, back to some animals, back to some Anyways, animals. <laughs> real animals. <laughs> okay, great ideas. Um, I was gonna ask something about, yeah, so the corona, the COVID-19 and the risks associated with sending out this misinformation. Have you seen or can anticipate any consequences for pangolins due to the fact of them being seen as this potential, you know, source of this virus? Like what, what are the risks associated with this type of misinformation and conservation? So there's a mixed spot. So at first you're like, oh, great. Like they're associated with this virus. People aren't going to want to eat them anymore, right? Like that's your first thought. Like, yeah, they're going to stay away from them. But we also have to kind of flip the script. That's what we would do. Oh, that opossum, you know, opossums don't carry rabies. That, that raccoon over there carries rabies. I'm going to leave that raccoon alone. That is us. But not everybody's going to think that way. They might think that pangolin has that disease that um, totally changed the entire course of the globe. I'm going to kill it so it doesn't do it again. And that's actually what we kind of feared because with the 2002 uh, SARS virus, um, because it was linked to civets, we saw retaliation in civets in different areas of the world where they were killing civets just because they were civets out of fear that they would be carrying SARS and pass it on. So as kind of like a preemptive, like for me, I was like, no, 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 that's not scientifically proven, don't spread it, like stop, stop, stop. But it uh, hopefully, through some more education, you know, the proof that like, oh, we can't officially prove that it came from there. There won't be a retaliation on pangolins. And, you know, it might be enough of a warning for people to be like, eh, I'm just going to leave that alone. But um, there is always a chance that people would retaliate against them. And historically, we have seen that. So that is definitely mm. a fear. Yeah, so there's a, there's a mixed bag of okay, reactions to what has played out. And I guess we won't see the potential consequences of that until it plays out. But that... Yeah. This idea of fake news, that brings me to, I guess, my next question around social media. So when I think of social media, you also think of fake news. They, they kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways. Um, so what are your thoughts on social media as a tool for conservation? How do you think about that whole thing and, and how do you try and implement that? So social media can be an extremely negative space, which makes it very hard to kind of flip the script on things like COVID-19's origin, right? So um, I got into like many an argument with people about how pangolins didn't were not the source, it isn't proven, blah, blah, blah. And then finally I was like, forget it, I'm making a video. So I made uh, several different videos talking about why pangolins were important, why we're not sure that pangolins got or carried COVID-19, and put those out to TikTok, which is, you know, like eight to 12 year olds. But <laughs> the reason why I did that, they're our future, right? So, but the reason why I did that is because I posted a video about a pangolin and like how cool they were. Like, I love this animal, look at how great it is. And then, and then I saw comments like, I don't care, that gave me COVID, that gave, not gave me, but that that's the source of COVID-19, I don't care about it. Why should I care about it if it's going extinct? And so that sentiment was right there in front of me that we were just talking about being afraid of. And so I think social media is an excellent tool and utilizing it in each different platform for the audience that's on there and the type of material that they're going to be absorbing. So Instagram, you see a lot of people on Instagram posting videos or pictures of themselves 
like with animals. That's what gets the attention. I'm going to hold this koala or whatever, and then people are going to care about it. Well, they probably won't. They probably are just going to comment, how do I do that? Right? So that's always an issue. But with Instagram, you have the benefit of the caption below, which not all platforms have a big, long caption. Like TikTok, you can put like 60 characters or something. It's very, very small. But if you have a video, then you can talk over it, you can explain it. So that's kind of why I've shifted a lot of my stuff to TikTok is because it's a lot better of a platform for explaining things. So as a zookeeper, obviously I'm with animals and near them and the things that I do, I'm trained to do and we don't necessarily want to encourage it. But a lot of times that is what people see and draws them in. So you hook them in with that and then you tell them the conservation story. <laughs> like, oh, you think this is cute? Well, let me tell you all about it. Now, there's a fine line there. And I feel like you are like ready to say something right now. Oh, no, no, no. I agree. There's I a like, fine line. I was, yeah. There's a very fine line um, between exploiting the animal online and taking pictures with it to get attention for yourself, which we see a lot, especially on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And using the animal as a conversation starter and you know whether that's the picture of the animal or you describing it or you you know I don't know taking care of it or whatever you can continue the conversation with that initial hook so it's almost like if you took journalism classes you know that when you write a newspaper article your your headline needs to hook people in and then they'll read the article same kind of idea with social media you want them to follow you, get them something that hooks them in, and then continue to push your conservation message, continue to push the things that you want to get out there without boring them um, and still keeping it entertaining. But it's a good platform if you're able to kind of assess the follower base. And it's ever evolving. I've never really talked about this, so I feel like I'm going around in circles. Have Does you got that make any, sense? Yeah, yeah. Have you got any... So this is for TikTok, kind of creating this type of content for... Yeah. Have you got any tips for for conservationists trying to get on this platform to educate? Yeah. Have you got any tips for how to get started, I guess? I also yeah. want to try and get started, so I'm, I'm going to be taking some notes right now. Go for it. So I developed my follower base based off of a sloth video that was like, nine seconds long it was just a sloth picking his head up to a song and that went viral which was very frustrating because i was like oh my god i don't i have this like weird love hate relationship with sloths because like everybody loves them but <laughs> after working with them it's just like meh you know yeah. like eh, they're cute but yeah like the penguins you know it's kind of yeah. like pandas you see a lot of people are like pandas are the best thing ever and it's kind of like yeah but look at this pangolin like see how cool it is so that's how I feel about sloths. Sloths are the slow panda. But finding something that's going to be visually appealing, for TikTok specifically, visually appealing and short. Once you get people short. to, yes, short, less than 15 seconds is ideal. There's an algorithm to TikTok. And basically the way that the algorithm works is it's almost as if you get different points for each interaction with your video. And certain interactions with your video are going to be worth more points. So a comment is worth more than a like. A follow based on that video is going to be worth more than the others. Um, a share, a duet, um, where people can like, you know, do their own video right next to yours. And 
actually re-watching that video is the, the number one thing for the algorithm. So if you have a long, one minute long video, they're probably not gonna re-watch it. Getting people to watch the video all the way to the end is actually really good for the algorithm. So you'll see a lot of people that are like, they'll have these videos that are like, one word comes up, today I learned, dot, 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 and they're doing something, that this is the most amazing thing ever, dot, 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 dot. Mm -hmm. And you wanna keep watching it, because you're like, what, it, what is it, I wanna know. And that's what they're doing. They're playing with that algorithm. So hook them in, keep it short, and try and get engagement. Mm -hmm. And that's how TikTok works. Because the more engagement, the more like points per se that you get, the more it shows to more people. And that's how people are going viral with their videos, um, which is not happening on Instagram, on any other platform, because people have to basically be following you or the hashtag that you hashtag in order to see your content. Whereas TikTok, they're just throwing you content with people that you may care about or you may not care about. So you want to get, and I vary my content a bit. So sometimes I do like the cute videos for like the kids that get real excited about cute videos. Um, and then other times I do like more serious stuff for like adults. And that way you're kind of targeting, I could go on and on. I've yeah, studied yeah. this a lot. Ah, <laughs> um, I see, yeah. I see. No, but uh, yeah, because I wanted to figure it out. I was like, how did yeah. I go viral with this stupid video? No, I think it's important. Like, you're obviously doing really well. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I think today, 190K. And, you know, you're raising awareness for these animals, the penguins. I know if you want to learn, if you're on TikTok and you want to learn more about the penguins, you've got a good series of videos on there about it. And I did notice your sloth video. I think it was your third post and it just blew up. Yeah. I think with TikTok, there's a real good opportunity for organic growth. Where Instagram, yes. that organic growth potential is less, you know, they're more steered towards, you know, paid growth. We have to pay for that, which makes sense from their point of view as a business. But TikTok, there's opportunity there, just figuring out how you can create content around it. The, the dot, dot, dot thing is quite interesting. Like there's little, little tips, like little tricks associated with creating content in order to entice people to stay on longer. Like, for example, penguins, the world most in traffic world most trafficked mammal dot 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 oh wonder oh no because dot 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 and they're like ah oh, i'm gonna wait around for another two seconds to see why those little things interesting i want to quickly go back real quick uh to the, the idea of where you draw that line between an unethical and ethical post on social media where a, an animal is involved in that piece of content it's obviously a fine line and that fine line isn't setting concrete at the moment. It's, it's, I think we're still trying to figure out where that is. But it's, I think it's really important to talk about where that could be because, yeah, you see a lot of animal influencers out there who unwillingly or willingly use these animals, I guess, as props. And that can lead to the legal pet trade. That can fuel that trade. And you only, have to, look, you only have to look at the comment section and a lot of them, and you just read the comments and they're like, some of them delete the comments. But if you get in there, early you can see some comments like where do i get this pet chimp where do i get this blah 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 yep. and you're just like this is this is not cool yeah so have, have you got like a framework or like guidelines that you follow or like a code of conduct around that informs where you kind of draw that line yeah for me like the people that i follow that are in that same realm are professionals zookeepers, animal trainers, biologists, field researchers, the people that are trained to handle 
and be around those animals. That I think first and foremost is the most important thing. They're not keeping them at home. They're not keeping them as pets. They're doing what their job is. So that's very important. I think the second thing is if it is an endangered animal, if it is an animal that can deliver a message of conservation, so sloths aren't endangered, right? But what I can do, and I've been holding off on sloth stuff because I just like don't want to post sloth stuff, but I think I have to at this point. That's all people want. I like post a video of like, I was like a Black Lives Matter solidarity, and people are like, where's your sloth video? Ugh, come on, guys. But with videos that are involving any sort of animals, putting a, a way that people can actually impact that animal in the wild. So not just saying, oh, this animal's endangered, look at how cute it is, but this animal's endangered, yes, it's cute, no, you can't have it as a pet, and this is what you can do to help save its wild counterparts, right? That's very important, a call to action. This is how you can help save this animal. So with a sloth that's not endangered, I might talk about shade-grown coffee, because in a way, shade-grown coffee is connected to reducing deforestation in the rainforest, which is then connected to sloths that live in the rainforest. So it is this, yes, there is a step um, in the middle, but we, I am still able to deliver a call to action for people to change their daily habits to help the sloth. I don't expect people to go out to, you know, the Amazon rainforest and like, you know, save sloths. Like, what can you do in your day-to-day -day life? And I think that's incredibly important. And I think answering those comments is another thing that I really try and do. I can't answer all comments and I feel bad. I wish I could, but I like need to sleep. And if I see a comment where someone says, hey, where can I get that? Or that's a really cool pet. I'm immediately on there. This doesn't make a good pet. You should look at your local animal shelter for a pet or sorry, this doesn't make a good pet. This is actually living at a zoo. You know, something along those lines where I'm addressing it right then and there. And I don't delete those comments because my response to it is going to be right there in the forefront when someone else sees it and maybe is ready to comment. Mm -hmm. So for me, those are my three things. And, you know, don't pose with a tiger in a pool in a bikini, you know, like don't make it sexy. <laughs> yeah, draw the line at don't make it sexy. <laughs> yes, don't make it sexy. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's okay on, on that call to action. I think that's really important. Posting this content, obviously educating, raising awareness, but then providing a call to action for the people that have engaged with that content who want to help out, giving them ways that they can do that. So mm -hmm. what are some ways that people can do that? How, how can the general public help save the pangolin and, and wildlife in general? Like, What are some tips for that? I think educating yourself, number one, is the most important thing. So um, rather than just blindly sharing articles, do your own research. Look for peer-reviewed journals. Look for scientifically valid publications and studies to kind of understand a little bit more. And a lot of people, when you get like a, um, a totally academic paper, it's very hard to digest. So there are publications out there. Manga Bay has lately been the one that I am just like all over. It's a online website that publishes conservation news and look for resources. Uh, so if someone quotes a factor figure, see where they're getting that factor figure. Then after you've been educated on a topic, I always encourage people to make their own content about it. Make a post, make a video, make, you know, like find a Creative Commons picture of that animal repost it on your Instagram with your own caption. 
and share that information because without us knowing about these animals, nobody's going to do anything about it. And, you know, pangolins, I've been saying for years and years and years, people didn't know what a pangolin was at all. Literally, I had people coming up that were asking if it was a snake when I would do my presentations, or I'd be holding the pangolin and talking about it this, you know, for 15 minutes or whatever. And people would say, oh, well, that was really great, but where are the black and white penguins? <laughs> you, you thought this was a penguin. So <laughs> communicating what the animal is then gets people to care more and more about it. Maybe they thought it was a penguin because I have a funny accent. I don't know. But uh, where was I going with this? How can the public help? Oh, yeah, you, so, you're, you're, you're doing, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was there. I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> I've thought about pe penguins. So also being able to change daily habits and affect the animals that are in your native habitat. So I may not be able to do anything here at home that's going to help polar bears in San Diego. There's not any polar bears wandering around in Southern California, right? But there are a ton of endangered animals. There are a ton of animals that are threatened with the things that um, I could directly contribute to and changes such as you know reducing my plastic usage because plastic is going to the ocean the ocean's right there that's causing a huge issue everyone knows that and you know even if you're in the middle of nowhere you know indiana and i can say that because i used to live in the middle of nowhere indiana all waters lead to the ocean so reducing your plastics these are all the things that we hear all of the time but if everybody does it it's going to make a big difference so gosh, I could go on and on with like little things like the shade grown coffee or looking for sustainable fish. If you're going to eat sustain, if you're going to eat fish, make sure it's sustainable, you know? So there's a lot of things that we can do at home to help our native species. Maybe you don't care about the endangered frog that's native to your home, mm -hmm. but it's still part of the ecosystem and it's still part of what makes nature in your area important and, mm. and unique. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. Um, when you were just talking at the end there, it reminded me of a, a quote. That's why I quickly hopped on Google just to double check I was saying the right quote in the right order. Um, but the the idea of thinking global but acting local, I think Jane Goodall said that. I think that's a really good philosophy. You know, these these local actions are actions that you can participate in because uh, they're local but they, everything is connected. So these local actions play a larger part in the, in the well-being of the planet. Another favorite quote of mine is, little by little, little becomes a lot, and that's a Tanzanian proverb. And that's really important. This idea that you may think, you know, me not doing this small action has got to do anything in the bigger picture. But these little actions add up over time and these little actions inspire someone else to make a little action. And then that compounds that impact. And that just, that ripple on effect over time, those little actions become a big, have a big impact over time. So that's an important thing to, to consider, I think. And the, um, the idea about creating content is a good one and it's really relevant today because that's how people communicate is through content. So continuing that chain of awareness, like seeing a piece of content, and then adding your own link to that chain and posting your own content and then yes. someone else adding that link. So we, we create this chain of um, awareness, I think is real important. Um, oh, there's so much I want to talk about, but we've only got pretty much running out of time. 
I might hit you real quick with a big question. Oh, it's not super big, but you're a zookeeper and I think you're, you're a good person to, to ask this question to. The future of zoos, where do you see zoos in 20 years? What kind of role do you think they'll play from a conservation perspective in the future? I'm just threw out 20 years as an arbitrary number. Yeah, what role do you see zoos playing in the future considering new technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality, stuff like that? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough subject because of course everyone, every zookeeper would love to see their animals in an open habitat, out in the wild, doing natural things. It's not a reality. It's not, unless humanity globally changes, the wild is not safe for the majority of our animals. And of course, you know, there's all the implications with re-releasing animals that were born under human care and things like that. But I feel that zoos are living arcs. And I think that if you are anti-zoo, you're anti-conservation. And I think in 20 years, there will be certain species that are only found in protected care. And as much as people may disagree with the fact that zoos inspire people because you see something up close and you care about it because you see it up close and you have a personal connection. Oh, well, I could do that if I watch TV. Yes, that does inspire people, but it's a different kind of inspiration when you see how big a rhinoceros is right in front of you. I worked in the zoo field for probably at this point like eight years and I took a, I went as a guest and visited the San Diego Zoo Wild Animal Park or Safari Park and it was when they had the northern white rhinos there. And for those that don't know, northern white rhinos are a critically endangered, functionally extinct subspecies of the southern white rhino. Um, there are only two living now, um, but at the time there were nine. And I remember the guide saying, you're looking at Nola. She is one of nine of her species or subspecies left. And that just hit me like hard. And I was like, I never cared about rhinos really ever. I was a big cat marine mammal person. And I was like, that's awful. How like someone could have told me that and I didn't see the animal and I would have been like, oh, that's really sad, you know, whatever. But like actually seeing her up close, seeing how gentle she was, seeing the personality behind the animal, that made that personal connection. And that's what actually that's actually that individual animal is kind of how Global Conservation Force got started, um, not by me, but one of her keepers. And that's so incredibly important to have that connection. So I see zoos evolving and they're, they're already evolving. You know, you're not gonna go to a modern zoo and see bars on, on a cage and an animal, you know, pacing around on a concrete floor. That it, a modern good zoo, you're not seeing that anymore. You're seeing naturalistic habitats. You are seeing implementation of enriched experiences like weather events, things to make the animal the most naturalistic life possible in a protected area. And some people say, oh, well, zoos are where they're just animals that are there for human entertainment. Well, that's because of the connection, right? And a good zoo that's got people out there like my role, like educators that are speaking to people and teaching them about the animals as they're seeing them, that's incredibly important. And that's how they get their money. And what, a good, what does a good zoo do with their money? They put it right back into conservation in the wild. Because eventually, the goal is to have wild protected areas where we can keep these animals that have lived there for thousands of years 
undisturbed by people before we came in. So that's kind of goes back to that idea of if you are against zoos, good zoos, then in turn you're against conservation because 20 years down the road, we may not have habitats for polar bears. That might be completely gone. And where else are we gonna see polar bears? At a zoo. And it might be a living ark. And maybe there's a chance that 50 years, 100 years down the road, we'll be able to you know, reinstate sea ice or something like that, and we can then start reintroduction efforts. But right now, the wild sucks, and we need to change that. Interesting, interesting. There's, there's many different layers to it. Like when mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that are anti-zoos, yeah, like you can't pick out a bad zoo and then say that all zoos are like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because there's, you have the, the conservation aspect, then you have the animal rights aspect. And there, there is, I think, a way in which a zoo can exist where the well-being of the animal is considered and, and, and taken care of. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how it evolves because, um, like you said, it is evolving now. Yeah. And in 20 years' time, it will continue to evolve for a positive reason. What kind of impact do you want to have as a conservationist? For me, I think inspiring others that can go out and make the change. You know, I have a master's degree. I did work in coral reef conservation. That's all well and good. And I would love to just dive in the water and use that as my career. But I think that having more impact in a platform where I can talk to a hundred people, a thousand people, 10,000 people, and, and, and have each one of them go out and do that kind of work is going to be a lot more change making than me just going and diving and saving coral as one person. So I think for me, my goal is to take what I have learned and what I have done and what I have seen and say, hey, this is all the information that I have. Now you guys go and take it and you you change the world. Because what's the point in getting experience and, and having these you know, kind of experiences, if I'm not able to pass it on, you know, then that's just selfish for me. So if I want to make impact, I want to get everyone else out there and I'm going to throw all my information at you and you guys learn and you go and do it. Not because I'm lazy, but just because that's going to be, you know, the most impactful because I'm only here for a short period of time on earth. So. Yeah, that's totally how I think of it as well. That's what I'm working towards. That's kind of what I'm trying to do as a conservationist. So I want to amplify my impact and how do you scale impact you scale it on the internet on social media these are platforms where you can send a message out to literally every single person like a a positive message can go viral and reach a large percentage of the global population so we, we live in times now where we can really scale that that impact it's just working out how to do it how to use the platforms in the right way um but there is a way to do it and i think uh, you're you're on the right track. Obviously, you're you're doing super well in the space. So kudos to you. Keep keep doing your thing. How can people connect with you online and learn more about your work? So online on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, I'm Lauren's Wildlife L A U R E N S Wildlife, just all one word. My website is laurenairs.com because I'm super creative. That's a joke. And <laughs> globalconservationforce.org is uh, Global Conservation Force's website, as well as Global Conservation Force on all social media platforms. And um, following our work that we do talks a lot, I didn't really get too much into that, but that is um, 
kind of the the heart and soul of of what we're doing you can see all of that on that platform yeah and i think one piece of advice that that I have for people wanting to spread the message of conservation is don't get hung up on the followers. And I've caught myself doing that with some of my TikTok videos. Like I put out a video about, I don't know, like the Tiger King because I have very strong opinions on the Tiger King and having worked in Big Cat Rescue in the past. And I got like 1,400 views. And I was like, oh God, like I have 190,000 followers. How did I only get 1,400 views? that's 1400 people that would not have seen that otherwise. And that, you know, like you kind of have to remove yourself from thinking like it's only successful if I get the same number of follows or the same number of likes as my most successful post. And that's not it. It's even if one person sees it, that's one person that you were able to talk to about it. So if you have 60 followers on Instagram and you want to post about conservation work, then do it because that's 60 people that you're sharing messages with. It doesn't matter if you have a million or 6 million or 60, it's still going to be people that you're impacting. There's another really good point. A lot of people on social media, they get caught up on these vanity metrics and it can upset a lot of people and it can deter people from creating more content uh, in turn, mm -hmm. stopping them from raising awareness. But like you said, if you create a video, and you got 2000 likes and that video was focused around how can we protect this particular animal? That's 2000 people that are aware of how they can help the animal that weren't aware of that before you creating that video. So it is challenging though, because obviously social media can tap with your brain. Oh yeah. It's super, super toxic. <laughs> super toxic. But having these conversations and thinking about potentially new ways to, to look at it um, can be really, helpful um, in terms of you creating more content, but also from your personal well-being point of view. Like if you tweak mm -hmm. how you look at this thing, um, it can help you feel a little bit better, which is good. We want to yeah. we want to feel good in doing this. We want to feel good as conservationists creating this sort of content because it needs to be sustainable. If you're not happy doing it, doing this and, and the whole content creation process, there's got to be an expiry date. You're, you're not going to, you've got to stop over a certain period of time just because either you feel shitty as a human like it's making you feel yeah. upset and anxious or it just becomes too difficult and becomes like too much of a chore so right finding right. finding the happy medium for you oh i was just going to add one little thing just i think collaborating with people that share the same sort of values you know like doing videos with them or sharing their work or only following people that are in that same realm. That's what I do on Instagram. Like I just cut out all the influencers. I'm like, I'm only following zookeepers and conservationists <laughs> because that's all I want to see on my feed. That's yeah. incredibly important too. hundred percent. Okay. Final question. What message do you want to leave the listeners of the conservation tribe? I think the biggest message that I want to spread is you guys can get out there and make change, whether that is physically in your local environment, going and doing a beach cleanup or picking up trash, or whether that is in the digital space and producing co content. You know, you don't have to be comfortable on camera. You could blog, you could find a, um, a website that allows, you know, outside writers to come in. You could take photos. There are lots of different ways that each and every one of us can make a difference in conservation. And it doesn't necessarily need to be flying to some remote location and sweating 
and you know using all the carbon it takes to fly there um, to do conservation work like it can happen here at home and I feel like I've impacted more people during this quarantine um, with conservation messaging than I did in the last 10 years because I have been working less which is a good thing and a bad thing it's actually kind of sad I miss the animals but I've had four days a week where I can just think about okay what do I want to spread what do I want to talk about and that's what I'm doing for my living room and I feel like that's much more impactful than the little bit that I can do on my own so do where use your skill set to impact conservation you could even like be a seamstress and that could be something that ends up you turn into helping conservation you have there the possibilities are endless it's not just about being you know on camera it's not about being a field researcher anyone can do it you just have to kind of be creative with your skills Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.